Hi, welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover. In our last episode, I sat down with Dr. Rachel Bond, a board-certified adult cardiologist with a practice in preventive cardiology. And we talked about women and our number one cause of death, cardiovascular disease. Specifically, we talked about ischemic heart disease, which involves blocked arteries. If you haven't had a chance to listen, I highly recommend checking out that episode. It's full of information about symptoms, risk factors, and also how to prevent heart disease. In today's discussion, we're diving deeper into what makes women's heart health so unique, and we're specifically talking about arrhythmias or abnormal heart rhythms and heart failure, especially the kind that affects women more but may remain unrecognized. Dr. Bond will also tell us what needs to change in research and treatment to improve outcomes in heart disease that affects women. And we'll also talk about a number of other issues, including heart disease in transgender women, advocating for more inclusivity in healthcare for everyone, and how technology can help doctors and patients become a team to work together to improve personal health. Here's a little more about Dr. Rachel Bond. She serves as the System Director for the Women's Heart Health Program at Dignity Health in Arizona. She also holds leadership roles in the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and the Association of Black Cardiologists, and drives initiatives that emphasize diversity in medicine, as well as an increase in the numbers of women, particularly women of color, in the field of cardiology. And just a reminder, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. What we hope you'll do is to share what you've heard today with your healthcare provider and consult him or her for any specific questions you have about your own personal health. Now let's join the second part of our conversation with Dr. Rachel Bond. We've talked about heart conditions in pregnancy. We're now talking about cardiovascular disease. What are some of the other heart issues that affect women? So women have the same, I would say, if not more, um, symptoms, not symptoms, but conditions that could affect them when it comes to their cardiovascular system. So oftentimes we talked a lot about the blocked vessels, how the pattern of it may not be as discreet where you have one single vessel that's blocked, but more of like a sort of lining and lumpy, bumpy plaque that's going through the big vessels, or maybe the microvasculature has disease. But then we know that cardiovascular disease encompasses a larger array of conditions. As an example, we have arrhythmias. So arrhythmias are in the form of abnormal heartbeats. The most common arrhythmia in the United States is a condition called atrial fibrillation. That is when the top chamber of the heart beats erratically. And as a result of that, if you're not protected, depending on your risk, um, in the form of being on a blood thinning medicine, it can increase your risk of having a stroke. I bring this up for us as women because we know that data supports the fact that even though women do better by coming out of AFib and having procedures that remove them from AFib, they are less likely to be referred 
to have such procedures. And again, this is where that unconscious bias comes into the mix. The other condition that I think is really important is heart failure. And there's different types of heart failure. So what is heart failure? Heart failure is when there could be an inability of the heart, which is a muscle, to either pump blood or relax the heart to allow that blood to be pumped to the rest of the body. When the heart is unable to pump the blood, you have a weakened heart muscle. And oftentimes women can have that, but more commonly, they don't have a weakened heart muscle. We as women more commonly, if we're having heart failure, have the inability to relax the heart. It's a condition called diastolic heart failure. And because it's often more common in women than men, it hasn't been as studied. And you will notice that when it comes to cardiovascular disease, when they're focusing in on research, the research is always usually for the conditions that impact men. The reason behind that is that when we first did our cardiovascular research studies, they used men, often men from the VA. At the time, it was majority men in the Veterans Affairs Hospital. Now that we are seeing that there are other conditions, one of this being diastolic heart failure, we now in the year 2024 are realizing we have to do more research to figure out how do we best treat it? Why does it disproportionately affect more women than men? And if we're not treating it appropriately, how are we doing a good service to our patients? The answer is we're not. And as a result of that, you really have to hone in on what is the best way to treat these patients. So when women present with signs of heart failure, which a lot of times could be shortness of breath, um, weight gain, swelling in their legs, a pressure in their chest, usually the first thing that they do is an ultrasound of the heart. And oftentimes what I notice is that if the heart demonstrates that it's doing its job by pushing blood out, the doctors just end there. And that's a challenge because again, it's not just the fact that the heart is able to push the blood out. Is the heart able to relax? And oftentimes it's not able to in women and we have to do a better job in diagnosing that. That way we can figure out how best to treat these women and improve their quality of life, but also their longevity of life. So those are probably the differences when it comes to men and women with heart disease. You know, as you well know, just as it's a recurrent theme that we don't have enough research and therefore it hasn't been translated to the bedside. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> you know, at the very beginning, we talked about gender versus sex, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but I feel like I want to ask the question about how, if you're a transgender woman, where does your risk lie, and are there any other considerations that you might have with respect to cardiovascular disease? Absolutely. So somebody who is a transgender female, often meaning that biologically they were born male and have tran since transitioned um, to a female um, and based on their gender um, identify as female, have sometimes a plethora of risk factors and a large portion of that could occur in that transition. So when you are taking sometimes those supplemental hormones, it could, as noted, depending on one's risk, impact the other risk factors we talked about, the cholesterol, the blood sugar, the, um, and also the blood pressure. As a result of that, we are very much recommending that the primary care clinicians or the clinicians who are prescribing the hormone therapy 
before providing these hormones or checking those basic labs, but also periodically continuing to check them. I would say the greatest driver though that we're seeing in the LGBTQIA community, not just specific to transgender, but the entire community as a whole is the impact that stress plays on their cardiovascular system. The community itself is a marginalized community. Um, there's lots of biases, often not unconscious, lots of conscious biases that are directed towards that community. And the strain and stress of that absolutely impacts their cardiovascular health. And it's absolutely for that reason that we are encouraging that not only are we helping them in their transition, but we're screening for depression, anxiety. We're screening for sometimes other more riskier conditions that could not only affect their mental health, but also their physical health and their physical health in the form of cardiovascular disease. And I know I alluded to the fact that stress in of itself is a risk factor. Yes, one that disproportionately affects women, but it affects all marginalized groups because of the lived experiences that they're encountering. And just imagine the amount of stress that one may encounter even in a transition where that stress is consistently leading to the release of adrenaline. It's affecting their inflammatory systems and oftentimes it could lead to premature heart disease as well as cognitive impairment. So I would say the greatest, greatest risk for the entire LGBTQIA community oftentimes has to do with the mental health that has to do with the societal view of them as an individual. And we do as a society need to do better to prevent that and more importantly, treat these patients equally. I couldn't agree more. And as you know, policy, politics, all impact on not only that issue, but so much more. Are you working in any way in terms of advocacy for certain policies? And if so, what do you feel is important? Absolutely. And, you know, I will say from an advocacy perspective, we have to have better access to mental health screening, also making sure that the, there's access to affordable health care, which I think at, the, at a minimum is where it should start. The American College of Cardiology, as an example, I, am, um, I sit on the National Leadership Committee for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And we have a subcommittee that's specifically dedicated to the LGBTQIA community, where we provide a series of educational materials out to the community, but we also provide our clinicians with probably best practice of what we should be doing in terms of screening and how best to manage these patients. And I assume that you apply those same principles to advocating for women and other underrepresented or marginalized populations as well? Absolutely. For, for myself, the advocacy always starts with that, which is my core. Um, a lot of the work that I've been doing in the advocacy field on women has been through maternal health. Um, when we think about cardiac disease and maternal health, there absolutely is an intersection. And in the United States, which is a first world country, as you know, we have the highest, highest rates of maternal mortality. And it's pretty much equivalent to that of third world countries. And when you actually separate it by race as well as ethnicity, we see that black women are dying at the highest rates. 
two to three times higher than white women when it comes to largely, largely preventable conditions, heart disease being the greatest cause of death during that pregnancy. And we know at the end of the day, it's not because black women inherently are at a higher risk biologically. It has to do with the social construct, the social aspects, and more importantly, the structure at the core, racism being that, that is leading to these disparities that we're seeing. Hearing women, not believing them, not believing their symptoms, not believing their stories, but more importantly, not treating them to the same capabilities of their white female counterparts and sometimes even male counterparts. As a result of that, it would be largely, largely important that when we are doing this advocacy, the advocacy is really making sound change. One way that we've been trying to do that is by extending the coverage of health insurance to not just occur during pregnancy, but even outside of pregnancy. Because a lot of these conditions can occur up to one year after delivery. So a lot of the advocacy that I've been doing with these cardiovascular societies has been to in accept the fact that we need to have all states extend Medicaid coverage up to 12 months. Um, in past, it would be 60 days and then they're done. Now, the majority of states have extended it to one year, giving them the opportunity to have a transition of care from an obstetrician, preferably to a primary care clinician as well. But beyond that, we have to do a lot of other policy changes where we're not only making sure that we're educating the patients, but probably the clinicians as well on this intersection. And most importantly, probably even educating the patients on implicit bias training, because I think at the core, those unconscious biases are leading to these disparities that we're seeing. And if they're not aware of their unconscious bias, they're not going to change it. And we're going to see the same outcomes in care. Um, which are, I would say, deplorable when it comes to the maternal mortality crisis. Let's switch a little bit to innovation. And, you know, this is a time of technology and AI and, you know, hope for the future. Is there anything out there that you're seeing that you're especially excited about? I think that the future of innovation when it comes to cardiovascular disease is very robust. Why do I say that? Well, to date, we are really trying to best predict who is at risk of having a cardiac event. We tried this and have been successful when it comes to something called precision medicine, which is where we're able to predict based on your genetic makeup what your risk may be for cardiac disease. And if your genetic makeup is high, Maybe we need to be more aggressive in managing your traditional risk factors. This, this, to the same degree, we're working on doing that when it comes to imaging modalities and trying to actually look at those same studies as an example, an ultrasound of the heart. But instead of looking at the larger muscles, at the microscopic level, are we able to see those subtle changes that may develop before we actually see that the muscle becomes an issue? So I'm really excited about where we are going in the world of innovation, particularly as it pertains to cardiovascular disease, because I think for me as a preventative cardiologist, it's only going to largely focus on that prevention, finding the issue before there actually is a problem. You know, I know you're not a surgeon, but do you see any 
innovation or need for innovation in even things like surgical equipment for working on women, if you will? That's a great question. I, I will say that when it comes to surgery, um, there actually is data to support that the outcomes of women, as an example, after an open heart surgery, because um, they had to have a bypass procedure because they had blocked vessels, or even more so a valvular replacement, women usually have a much harder time recovering versus their male counterpart. And we have to get to the core of why. If we had an innovative way to determine that, is it because the standard of care of how we're doing the procedure perhaps should be different in a woman versus a man? Perhaps, but I think you're, you bring up a very valid point that because we see that these sex and gender disparities exist, using innovation to figure out how can we prevent that, how can we best treat these women are going to go a long way. Surgery has been around forever. We probably do need to have some innovation of it to figure out why these disparities exist and how we could ultimately prevent them in the future. That's a great question. Sure. And <laughs> along, thank you. And along those lines, in terms of uh, technology, are you incorporating uh, patients' wearables and their data in your uh, practice? Yes. So wearables, I would say, are standard. It has to be standard at this point in time. Not for every patient, of course, but for patients that have all, all often symptoms or have underlying diagnoses. And when we think about the wearables, the focus that I often look at most are the abnormal heart rhythms, the arrhythmias that we are often able mm -hmm. to capture with those wearables. Uh, we have smart watches, we have other devices that could be utilized, and the value of that is that there is some accuracy. Is it equivalent to the data that we collect? Of course not, but it gives us again a better idea of what is going on. And that comes into, I would say, a huge benefit because if we have you wear data or if you, we have you wear um, uh, devices and we're not able to capture something then and there, we're missing it. We're missing the opportunity to diagnose you sometimes with a very abnormal heart arrhythmia that could lead down the road to cardiovascular complications. If you have a wearable device, perhaps we can capture it on that and it will again direct us in that right path. And as a result of that, I am always in favor if my patients have one access to it already or the means to afford it to use these wearable devices. And to that point, our cardiovascular societies right now are trying to work with Medicare and other insurances to see if some of them will be covered because we know that there are benefits in having them as an extender, often for our most symptomatic patients because it only helps us as clinicians to better diagnose them, but sometimes even diagnose them a little bit earlier. Will we see success in insurance coverage? I don't know, but we will continue to advocate for that because we know it's the right thing to do. Sure. Well, you've been so generous with your time. What did I not ask you that you think is important for our listeners to uh, understand? For the women out there that are listening, I think it's important that we as women understand that oftentimes we put everyone above our own self when it comes to our health. We have to take a pause. We have to go to the doctor, the clinician, at least on an annual basis. 
We also have to do things that are all, all more importantly going to help our mental health because our mental health equals our physical health. And if our physical health needs a little bit of help, oftentimes that means our mental health needs a little bit of help as well. So as women out there that are listening, it's really important that we take a step back, focus on ourselves, because if we don't focus on ourselves, we won't be able to care for our loved ones, our colleagues, our friends, our family. That's a great way to end. Dr. Rachel Bond, as always, I've learned so much. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. So as we wrap up our chat with Dr. Rachel Bond, you can now see that women's heart health has many differences compared to our male counterparts, whether it's disease caused by blockages in arteries, arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation, or heart failure. Yet we need to increase the amount of research to understand not only the differences, but how to diagnose and treat these conditions successfully. Innovations like using wearables to help monitor patients outside of the doctor's office is a great example of how technology can help us improve our heart health. Here are some action steps that we can take from our conversation. Keep learning about heart health so you can recognize symptoms that need to be attended to. Don't hesitate to speak up about your health concerns. If something doesn't feel right, seek medical advice. Consider supporting organizations that focus on women's heart health and those that advocate for inclusive health care, such as Women Heart and the American Heart Association. You can find links to these organizations in our podcast notes. Finally, share what you've learned with friends and family. Awareness can save lives. Thanks as always for joining us today. You are always welcome to our website at beyondthepapergown.com that also has articles, resources, a marketplace, and more. You can subscribe to our newsletter while you're there. And speaking of subscriptions, do subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. Until next time, take good care. Beyond the Paper Gown is produced by Patrick Shambayati and me, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian.